Hi, everybody. Hi, my name is Charles. I'm one of the pastors on the teaching team. I want to greet those of you in the room right now and those of you joining us at Upper House, Fitchburg, Gospel Fusion, Tradition. A big shout out to those of you who are streaming this online and those of you listening to our podcast. Uh, to the Chinese speakers, and to the Spanish speakers, es un gusto tenerlos aquí. Uh-oh. Con nosotros. I am so sorry. <laughs> Okay, uh, well, to everybody, welcome to Blackhawk Church. We're so very glad you're here. Now, we are in, a, uh, in, a, in our sermon series this fall called Empowered for Mission, and we're reading the book of Acts. And, and for the first 10 weeks, we're focused on the stories in the first seven chapters of Acts. We believe these stories, first of all, they tell what's going on in the church in her infancy, and we believe these stories tell the DNA of the church. They reveal the DNA. And so today we're continuing uh, by looking at the, the story in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. So if you have your Bible or your journal with you, open up to Acts chapter 6. It's seven verses. It's very short. It's kind of a strange story. Okay, it's kind of like, wait, if you read it, you're going to go, what is this story doing in the Bible? Now, it may not look like much, but we're going to dive into it, okay? And it packs a punch. So, let me read it first. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So, the story. And how does this start? Okay. The story begins with one group of people in the church having problems with another group of people in the church, right? So you see, you have the Hellenistic Jews, and they're complaining against the Hebraic Jews. So obvious question, right? Who are the Hellenistic Jews, and who are the Hebraic Jews? So let's remind ourselves where we are in the story. We're in first century Jerusalem. Um, some time ago, in the day of Pentecost, um, there was this amazing thing that happened, and 3,000 people joined the church. They, they formed a church. And these 3,000 people, they are an international crowd. Uh, the, the text was very clear on this, that, that a whole bunch of Jews from all over the world, they come to Jerusalem for the, for the Pentecost, and 3,000 of these international crowd become the church. Okay? And then sometime after that, um, Peter and John, they do a miracle in the temple, and that caused another major influx of people into the church. So by then we get to Acts chapter 4, we see but many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. So the number of men, NIV says, in the church. That means with women and children, we're talking about a possibly 10,000 person church. Now, the NIV translation says total number roughly about 5,000 men. Um, 
the Greek can actually be translated as 5,000 on top of the original 3,000. So we're talking about possibly a church that's close to 15,000 people. Okay? Now, just as a point of reference, the city of Verona, the last census, says 14,000 people, just for the sake of comparison. But this new influx of people most likely are local folks, people from the Jerusalem area. There's no mention of an international crowd, and there's no major festival to draw people in. So by the time we get to the sixth, to the sixth chapter, what we have here is a church roughly around 10,000, 15,000 person in size. They're all Jewish people. Okay? They're all Jewish Christ followers. But there are significant differences among them. So there, you have one group. They're kind of the, a significant majority, and, and they're called the Hebraic Jews. They, they, they live from Jerusalem, the surrounding area. Their, their main language is Aramaic. And uh, their culture, well, they're culturally Palestinian Jews. But there's also another group of people, a significant minority in the church, and they are called the Hellenistic Jews. Where are they from? Well, they're from all over the Roman Empire. Okay, they're spread out. They speak their own mother tongue, whatever language that's in their region, and they're also very fluent with Greek. That's the dominant language of the Roman Empire. And their culture, well, they're, they're all over the place. Okay. This is, these are the Hellenistic Jews. So what we have here in the first century is a multicultural, multilingual church and with Hebraic Jews and the Hellenistic Jews. All right, next thing. What is the complaint about? Well, Luke's been telling us that the church has been dealing with a problem of poverty in the church from the very beginning. So if you see in chapter 2, um, the people in the church, they were, they're seeing people who are poor, and they sold property and possession to give to anyone who had need. So what you have is kind of a hodgepodge system where I see somebody who needs, who needs stuff, and I sell something, and I give them the money. But by the time you get to chapter 4, when you're talking about a 10,000-plus person church, that's not going to work. So now we have a more refined system, right? So chapter 4, verse 34, from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. So on a regular basis, people of means, they sell property, they sell land, they take the money, give it to the apostles, and the apostles has a way of distributing the money to the needy people. By the time you get to chapter 6, okay, now they go beyond simply distributing money. Now they're doing daily food distribution. So think like Uber Eats, right? You go online, you click, and the food gets dropped off in your house. Okay, I'm kidding. But, but it's kind of like that, right? It's, it's the same idea, just doing it before there was internet or before there was electricity. Right? The church was doing daily distribution of food for the needy. And it is at this point in time that things begin to go wrong. You see, the Hellenistic Jews, the people who are in the minority, the people from the rest of the world who speak a different language, practice a different culture, they're beginning to notice something. They're noticing that their widows, the people who are the neediest, the people without power, without legal rights, they're getting skipped. They're getting overlooked. They're getting neglected. And so they're beginning to complain. The Greek word there means to speak quietly. So they're beginning to murmur, okay? They're murmuring. Now, first reaction, wow, 
the Bible talks about stuff like this. The Bible talks about ethnic tension in a church. And not just any old church, the very first church, right? And, and, and of course, it is a multicultural church, so of course, surprise, surprise, things don't go well. Things go wrong. I know, you know, some people always say, oh, it's so awesome back in those days in the first century. Yeah, no, not so much. Here's the thing we need to know about churches, first century or 21st century. The church is composed of people who come out of this broken world into the church, and we bring our brokenness right in. Broken attitudes, broken ambition, broken ego, broken prejudices. We bring the brokenness right into the church so that there is absolutely no perfect church. If you are waiting for a perfect church before you join it, you got a long wait. All right. So, we have a problem in the church. How does the church respond? Verse 2. So the 12 gathered all the disciples. Okay, let's just stop right here, all right? So the 12 apostles, they call a meeting for all the disciples. How many people? 10,000 to 15,000 people. Wow, that is a big congregational meeting. And you can't even zoom in. Okay, that is a massive meeting, right? And okay, now, 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 some of you might be thinking, well, wait a minute, that seems like a bit of an overreaction, don't you think? I mean, yeah, I mean, an operation, like r- running a food distribution operation, that's challenging, right? Without modern technology, things fall through the cracks, right? right? People get skipped, it happens. Administration and logistics are notoriously difficult to get perfect. So the solution is to find the problem and fix it. Why would you want to get the whole church involved? The answer? Because this is about the identity of the church. If you remember Pastor Matt in his sermon on Acts chapter 2, he talked about the day of Pentecost. If you didn't see that sermon, you got to go see it. It's foundational. Got to go watch it. What he said is the church is created to be the answer to the problem of the Tower of Babel. Now, Tower of Babel is a story that comes out of Genesis chapter 11, right at the beginning of the Bible. And it tells a story of how the world becomes divided into multiple ethnic and language groups. The world is divided because for us broken humans, differences divide us. Differences in culture, in ethnicity, in language, they divide us, not just physically separate us, but no, we look down on, we disdain, we hate those who are different from us, and we go to war against them. What do you see when you look at this map? I see lines created by warfare by massacres, by colonialization, by genocide. I see lines created by the horrific things we human beings do to those who are different from us. This map is a painful reminder of the depth of human depravity because we can't handle differences. And the church is supposed to be the solution to this. Pastor Matt told us that the church is created to be a solution to the problem of Tower of Babel. That the church is created to usher in the final age where the Holy Spirit comes and creates this multicultural, multilingual church where people, instead of being divided by our differences, we actually love each other because of our differences. 
That's the calling of the church. That is a core part of our identity as the people of God. And now comes chapter 6. And now we have, and Luke is very clear on this, we have unequal treatment along ethnic lines. If you're a widow from the home culture who speak Aramaic, you're part of the majority group, you are taken care of. But if you're a widow from out of town, who speak a different language, practice a different culture, you are now overlooked. You're neglected. This is happening in the church. This is happening in the kingdom of God. So do you see why? What's happening is not a mere bump in the road. That what's happening is not just, oh, a little snafu that we need to go and fix it. We need to tweak it. No, what's happening here is a crisis of identity. And the question that's confronting the 12 apostles and the first century followers of Jesus is this. Are we truly who we say we are? Are we truly the people of the final age that is formed by the Holy Spirit where language barriers and cultural barriers do not matter? Or do we just talk a big talk? Are we just as tribalistic as everybody around us? All those people in the Roman Empire who look down on and disdain and hate those who are different from them. Are we truly who we say we are? You see, a church, a people who claim to be the people of the final age, unequal treatment along ethnic lines cannot happen. And so the apostles, they call a meeting for the whole church. Everybody, all the disciples, and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Okay, let me just stop right there. Whenever I read this verse, I can't, I just involuntarily cringe. <laughs> I can't help it. I mean, I don't know about you, man, but this sounds awful. Right? It sounds like these 12 guys are like just vain, egotistical jerks. Oh, we're too good to wait on tables. Oh, no. No, no, no. We can't do that. Right? So, okay, I know it sounds bad. I am going to say a couple of things to help us. Well, I'm going to help them out a little bit, okay? So, number one, we need to remember that this is a 10 to 15,000 person church that's running daily food operation. So, those of you who do administration and run small businesses, you know how big a deal this is. So the 12 is not saying, oh, we're too good to wipe tables or to hand out food. What they're saying is, we can't handle this logistical nightmare. Okay? It's too big for us. It's too complex for us. Plus, we have another job, right? We actually have regular things we need to do. We need to teach the Bible in the temple every day, and we actually lead prayer meetings. We can't do this. We can't handle administration at the same time. The second thing is this. That if you look at the rest of the story, you'll find that this is not a put down of people who do ministration. It's actually an elevation, right? So first you'll notice is that you look at the qualifications required for these people who do, who do ministration, that they should be full of the spirit and wisdom. Now, wisdom there most likely refers to their skill in running a complex operation involving people of different languages and different cultures. So we're talking about hiring, recruiting big-time leaders in the community who also happen to be full of the Spirit, people who also know God. And also, if you look at verse 6, the 12, 
they prayed and laid their hands on these seven persons. In the New Testament, laying hands symbolizes a transference of power and authority. So now we have seven new leaders in the church. We have 12 people in charge of teaching the Bible and leading prayer, and we have seven in charge of administration and logistics. Okay. So, so far, we have a story about ethnic tension in the church that's resolved by appointing leaders who specialize in administration. There's more. There is one more dimension to the story, and it is the most important dimension to the story. Okay? And that dimension is revealed in verse 5. Verse 5 is the climax of the story. I'm going to read it to you. Listen carefully. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. Did you hear it? Did you hear something climactic, something wondrous, something stunning, something jaw-dropping? It's okay if you didn't. It's okay. Because unless it's been explained to you, we 21st century Madisonians cannot see it. Once again, the Bible's not written to us, but for us, strikes again. Yeah. For a first century reader of this text, they will read verse 5, and if they're reading for the very first time, they would go, wow. I'm going to try something today. Instead of explaining to you what's going on in verse 5, I want to help you experience what a first-time reader in the first century would have experienced. Okay? I, want you to, I want to see if that works. So if it works, okay, email me. If it doesn't, don't, don't, don't. I don't want to hear about it. <laughs> If it works, email me. Let me know if this works, okay? So what, I'm, what, I've, what I've done is I've, I've tweaked the story, just a few details, to help you experience what a first-time reader in the first century would have read. Okay, so here goes. So I, I made changes, and it's marked in yellow, okay? In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Chinese-speaking Jews... Okay, let me just make something clear. There are some historical evidence about Jews in China, but we have zero evidence, zero evidence whatsoever that there were Chinese-speaking Jews in Jerusalem in the first century. Okay, so I'm just making this up. It's completely made up, okay? Let's be clear. The Chinese-speaking Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the 12 gathered all the disciples together and said, oh, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. All right, and here comes verse five. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Mei Zhang, Yu Zhen Li, Ming Liu, Haiyan Chen, Li Feng Wang, Guo Shu Wu, and Wei Li Zheng, who is from Beijing. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. Did a switch get flipped in your mind? Did a light bulb go on? 
did the story just suddenly gain a different level of meaning? Let me make sure we're all on the same page. These seven names, they're all Greek names. They're all names of Hellenistic speakers, Hellenistic Christ followers. Okay? Verse 5 is the climax of the story. The names are the climax of the story. With these names, a first century reader, when they read this, they go, oh, I get it. I get what the church has chosen to do. You see, the church is confronted with a crisis of identity. We have a problem of ethnic inequality that strikes at the heart of who they are. And, and here's the problem. Luke doesn't tell us what the problem is, right? And in fact, you notice that the apostles, they don't ask why this is happening. No, they don't form a subcommittee to do an investigation. They, they, don't, they don't find the culprits and put the blame on them. No, 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 no. Instead, the church, and this is important, not the 12, the church, a community that is dominated by Hebraic Jewish Christ followers, they decide to appoint seven Hellenistic Jewish Christians as leaders. Okay? Now they have, the church has 12 Hebraic Jewish Christian leaders teaching and leading prayer and seven Hellenistic Jewish Christ followers running administration. A multicultural, multilingual church in first century Jerusalem decides to intentionally diversify her leadership to give power to the group of the minority. Why? Because we are a people on a mission. We are called to bear witness to Jesus Christ, not just by what we say, but by how we live. And in this case, how a church organizes itself. Okay. And when we do that, something amazing happens. Look at verse 7. Look at verse 7. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now, okay, now, church spreading rapidly. I mean, that, that, Luke's talked about that before. But here's something unique and very specific. Priests. Not just a couple of priests. Large number of priests coming to the faith. Now, who are Priests. You heard of chief priests, right? They're part of families that, that, that run the temple, okay? They are powerful, they are wealthy, they're well-connected. We're not talking about them. We're talking about the rank-and-file priests. Now, these are average Jewish people who have the privilege of coming to the temple and serve on a regular basis. The rest of the time, they go back home. They're not wealthy and they're not connected. In fact, when they're home, they serve as the main teachers of the law. And ordinary folks, they go to priests when there are legal disputes. They got questions going on. Okay. In other words, these people are the backbone of the Jewish community. They had deep and abiding faith in God. And so the question is, why are the priests coming to faith now? Right? They heard about Jesus. No response. They heard about his death on the cross. No response. Oh, they heard about the news of his resurrection. No response. They heard about what happened on Pentecost. No response. 
They heard about all the miracles that the apostles are doing. No response. And yet, in reaction to a logistical mistake on food distribution, they come to faith? Do you really think that a whole bunch of priests choose to follow Jesus simply because the church figured out, hey, we need administrative leaders? I don't think so. Here's what I think. I think the priests decide to come to faith because, because we haven't seen this before. We are priests. We have served God all our lives. We've been praying for his kingdom coming. And believe us, we're priests. We've, we've heard a lot. We heard a lot of God talk. We heard a lot of religious talk. They come to nothing. We've seen a lot. Lots of people claiming to be prophets, claiming to be messiahs, coming, trying to pull off things in the name of God. They come to nothing. But we haven't seen this before. You followers of Jesus of Nazareth, you guys are nuts. You're trying to pull off this multicultural community thing, and, and you know, we're watching, and I tell you, nobody, nobody thinks it's going to work. And now you got this whole thing with these Hellenistic widows, they're getting neglected, and we're like, ha, we saw that coming a mile away. And we know what's gonna happen next. Mutual accusation, and the whole thing blows up. And then, and then you go and appoint seven Hellenistic leaders. You go and hand power to people who speak a different language, who live a different culture. You have power to people who are not us, but them. We haven't seen that before. A people who give away power. We have not seen that before. Something going on here. Something that looks like and smells like God. We're going to follow Jesus. That's the story of Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. It's a story about ethnic tension in a church that is resolved by the church giving power to the group that's outsiders. And the consequence of that among the priesthood. What do we do with a story like that? Well, first thing, there's some of us here, some of you, you're like, okay, I've been reading Book of Acts all my life, decades. I haven't heard it explained like this before. I need to process this for a little bit. And by the way, that's my story, okay? I grew up reading the Book of Acts. Nobody ever explained it like that to me until 1993 when I went off to seminary and my New Testament professors explained it. And I'm like, what? I can't believe this is in the Bible. The Bible talks about ethnic tension and how do you resolve it? Why would the Bible talk about this? I didn't get it. Okay? So I understand. For some of you, it's going to take some time for this to kind of sink in, to process. But let me remind us. The Bible does talk about ethnic tensions in churches because it has to. It has to. Because we live in a world, and we have always lived in the world, with ethnic tension. And if the church truly is the solution to that problem, 
then the Bible absolutely has to talk about how to deal with ethnic tension. Now, here at Blackhawk, you know that we have been on this journey toward God's vision of a multicultural kingdom for some time now. Um, so what does this story say to us as a church? Well, three things. Number one, expect problems. Yeah, things are going to go wrong. When wrong for them, it's going to go bad for us. Okay, it's just going to happen. We're going to blow it. We're going to make mistakes. It's par for the course, especially for a multicultural church. Aren't you feeling so encouraged? <laughs> Aren't you glad you came to church today? Yeah. Okay. We're going to face problems, number one. Number two, while the problems are natural, the solution is supernatural. That Jerusalem church in the first century, they confronted their crisis of identity by doing something different. They gave away power. That's supernatural. People don't do that. The world doesn't do that. But the church does because we are called to bear witness to Jesus. Paul writes about this in Philippians chapter 2. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Why do we look to the interests of others above our own? Why? Because that bears witness to Jesus. Verse 5, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as of Christ Jesus. And what is that mindset? Who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. The kingdom being ushered in by Jesus is led by a king who elevates the welfare and interest of others above himself. And this king wants to build a kingdom where everybody does that, individually and across ethnic lines. The only way for a multicultural church to work is if everybody thinks about the interest of the other people in the other groups. The only way it's going to work. Can you imagine living in a world like that? Can you imagine living in a world where everybody's thinking about, oh, how does that impact them? Thinking about how to empower those without power. How to help those who are not flourishing to flourish. Can you imagine a world like that? Well, that's how the kingdom is supposed to be. That's how the church is supposed to be. Now, I know that is a radical call for our church. That's a radical call. And this story raises all kinds of difficult questions for us as a church. And believe us, believe me, we struggle with these questions every day. And... Uh, and we do not have the answers. We do not have it figured out. We are still flailing. We're still trying to figure things out. Okay? That's just where we are. But we are on this journey together. Because we're called to bear witness to Jesus. Not just by what we say, but by also by how we live and how we love. Now that's our response as a church. What about individually? Now I know some of you are like, 
chomping at the bit. I want to think about how this story impacts my, my work, my school, my, my relationship, how I have my family, my, 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 my social media. You can, your mind's going to go that way very quickly. Okay? I want to pull it back. I want to pull it back. Okay? Instead of jumping to that, what I want is for us to have this story sink in. Because this story is a foundational story. This is a story that informs our identity and tells us who we are. That is for those of us here who are Christ followers. We are people who give away power. We're people who give away power. What I'm gonna ask is all of us, and, and all of us, I want us all to read this together, okay? Not just, not just people in the room, all the sites and venues, okay? And, and if you're listening to a podcast or watching, streaming this on a computer somewhere, read this out loud with all of us, okay? And, and if you're in a library, just whisper, okay? All right, let's read it together. We are people who give away power. That's who we are. And how do we have this identity sink in? The way to do it is to have the story rest deep here. So here's my challenge to you. Instead of trying to work out the ramifications immediately, I want to challenge you to, 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 to grab onto the story. So here, here's the challenge. This week, every day this week, I want you to read this story out loud. Okay? It's seven verses. It'll take you less than 90 seconds. That's the challenge. Every day, once, for seven straight days. And I want you to, after reading it out loud, spend five to 10 minutes meditating on the story. Think about, I don't know, how would you run a food distribution system in, in an urban area like Jerusalem before technology? Think about what would the Hellenistic Jews may have been thinking or feeling? Think about the, the Hebraic uh, uh, Christians, what were they thinking as they were voting on getting these seven leaders appointed? Think about the details, meditate on it, stew on it. Also, I want you to talk about the story. Talk about it with your friends, talk about it with your family, if you have a friend who's never heard the story, perfect. Tell them the story. Explain the story to them. Tell them that this is how the church is supposed to be. And of course, definitely talk about it in your life groups. And you'll notice that as you meditate on the story, as the story sinks in and become part of those core stories that define who we are, and as you talk about it in community with other Christ followers, you'll notice the Holy Spirit coming alongside and they're helping you. He's helping you figure out what to do with the story in your life. Not just this week, not just this month, not just this year, but for the rest of your life. So that we become people who give away power. Let me pray for us. Father, I want to thank you for the people in this first church 2,000 years ago and the work you were doing in their lives. That they saw a problem, they saw a difficulty, and they confronted it. And your Holy Spirit was doing amazing work in transforming their hearts. So they were making decisions to bear witness to you in how they organized their church. We glorify you for them. We thank you for the work of your Holy Spirit. And Father, we pray for that same Holy Spirit to work in our lives today. That same transformational work. That as you help them know how to give away power, you help us to do the same. That we become people who give away power. 
We pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.